What is up, Brick Stackers? Welcome back to a brand new episode of Stacking the Bricks. As always, I'm your host, Alex Holman, and this is yet another edition of the Tiny MBA Podcast Tour. Over the last few weeks, I've been visiting podcasts all across the internet, talking with entrepreneurs and creative people just like you. These folks, though, have already had a chance to read a copy of my new book, The Tiny MBA, and in each of these conversations, we get a chance to go deeper into their favorite lessons from the book to help you get an even better understanding of how they might be valuable to you. In the last episode, I sat down with Ken and Becca from Chariot Solutions to talk about their favorite lessons from the book. So if you haven't had a chance to check that one out yet, make sure you tune in when you're done listening here. In this episode, I visited with Brendan Hufford on the SEO for the Rest of Us show, which you can find on both YouTube and anywhere you get podcasts. Brendan and I talked about how the Tiny A was kind of a surprise for him, but in a good way why building trust at scale is actually a better way to think about building an audience and how to get over the fear of just putting yourself out there on the internet. With that, I hope you enjoy this in-depth conversation that I had with Brendan. Here we go. It's the closest thing I've found, and I mean this to be complimentary, not to be comparative, to a book that I read from Paul Jarvis called Everything I Know, because I was reading this recently that there's a lot of like beginner like how-to content out there right where you got to give people the step-by-step but if you want to write for high-level marketers and executives just give them a framework they'll fill in the details with their own reality right and i noticed that about paul's book and this was probably like four or five years ago and it was very like transformative for me and i feel the same about Mm -hmm. tiny mba because there's enough in there to give you like something very concrete but also enough that it's not so prescriptive on certain things that you can't fill in your own details. Yeah. Well, and the truth is, is like I've been teaching the how-to-y stuff long enough to know that even when you do prescribe it, people fill it in with their own details anyway. And so it's it's definitely, you know, the intent is, is it's written at a different level, uh, very, very much on purpose. And it was fun to, you know, get, get your response similar to some things I've read from other folks that were in the first few people that read it saying like, you know, I know you said I could read this in 30 minutes and, but I I felt like I wanted to sit with each page for at least a couple of minutes and be like, what is that? What does that mean for me though? In a good way. Like it's, it's sort of, it's, it's almost the the other comparison that one of the first people who read it says this reminded them of Brian Eno's oblique strategies deck which wasn't a book, but it was a bunch of prompts that are meant to make your brain go, hang on a second, in in a constructive, positive way. A very important question. We're going to start out with this. Question one, what is this typeface and why do I love it so much? (laughs) Which one is that? The one that you use in like the art and on the cover. And I'm just like, I love it. Like I want to get tattoos of this. So... Uh, Credit goes to the designer of the book, Hannah Litvin. She's extraordinary. And the, I'm pulling up the file here. We got to get out some files here. Sorry, I may be digging into it. Uh, While you're looking that up, I'll also say on the cover, this will definitely get people to at least check out the cover. There's like, it says the tiny MBA, but the is a sticker that reminds me of just, it's so much nostalgia and like childhood for me of going to ironically because you're from philadelphia but i'm from upstate new york and we had a store there chain of stores called philadelphia sales 
And I feel like every store there, all those stores use that exact same sticker. As soon as I saw it, I was just like, oh, that's so wonderful. Cool. So I'll get back to the font vis-a-vis this story. When I reached out, when Hannah first asked, especially on the cover, which we designed before we did some of the, the, the topography artwork inside, she said, what do you want in terms of inspiration for the book? And I said, you know, part of me wants to, uh, you know, compare it to the classics. How to win friends and influence people. And, and it was it Seven Effect. Habits of Highly Effective People, right? Covey, yeah. Stephen Covey. Um, Speed of Trust. Like, they all have an aesthetic to them that is extremely type-driven and and definitely of like a different time period. At the same time, I kind of wanted to parody them. So I was like, I want it, but I don't. So I don't know if that's useful to you at all. And somehow she nailed this kind of retro, but like almost a parody, but still like really, really uh, kind of seductive. So the topography, the the cover font, Tiny MBA, is a font called 70s. And the other one that you love is called Mamba. And oh. I, in the, we're going to have to add to the website like a little production colophone that includes those because multiple people have been like, what are these fonts? They're fantastic. It's so good. It's so funny. I have my 22 Immutable Laws of Marketing literally has a pricing sticker on it that some, I bought it used off Amazon because this is like the 19 whatever version of it like when it first came out. But it has like a price sticker that somebody scribbled out and I, I just loved it. And I loved it too. It also made me like look really close and like read what it actually says on there, which I don't know, it's just, it's, it's the chef's kiss uh, of the cover. And I love it. I also want to give you kudos. You told a story in, in, towards the beginning about sitting in a principles of macroeconomics class that I have also, we weren't in the same class, but we were in the <laughs> same class. And it made me laugh so hard that I was like making dolphin sounds. Like I couldn't even, <laughs> I just knew, you know, if you've been there, you've been there and you're like, I paid $96 for this book on macroeconomics and this class is awful. When am I ever going to use this? And then it's like, that is what you mentioned about like the antithesis kind of thing of like, this is not that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and specifically in that story that like, I, I mean, I took that class and things like that class caused me to drop out of school and perhaps at, for at least a moment think maybe business isn't for me. And I think that's another thing. A lot, of, a lot of folks, I have so many friends who are like, I would hate running my own business. And I'm like, I mean, maybe, but based on what? And the, the things that they are often based on are these sort of sometimes out of date, but always kind of tropey and and weird and not quite really attuned to the reality. There's lots of things about running a business that are hard, but the things that freak people out, I think, are, are just not the things that are, are going to ruin your day most of the time. So, so yeah, and it's like, for as miserable I was as I was in those classes, having that experience definitely pushed me in the direction of, I think I understand what my priorities are now. And like, it's important to understand these concepts, but like 10 weeks of class about it? Like, I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah. Tell me, I, I want to also just pull this thread a little bit more and come back to the whole like beginner content, advanced content kind of thing. Because I think when people, I wasn't prepared for what, what I read in the book. Like I thought it was a, I thought it was going to be very standard. I have an expectation of when people say I've written a book, what it is going to be. And this was very different. This was very, 
again, like I mentioned, Paul Jarvis, and it's very like what I met, you know, when you read books by Seth Godin, and you're like, I thought I knew what a book was, and this is not that. And I mean that as a compliment, because like, you know, tell me what, like, I feel like it's very, this is from watching, I've probably watched Inception 50 plus times, but I'm very fascinated with the idea, kind of like I mentioned earlier, of like, they give them the dream, and then they fill it with their own subconscious. Like, the book, when people see it for the first time and they see the pages or they read the review that I'm writing and everything, they'll see some of it. It's not like long-winded. There's not like a sto- five, sto- you know, the business book tropes of like, we got to tell you five stories about every single point so you can remember it. Like there's none of that. It's very short. It's very uh, punchy. And I love that. Tell me like, why did you decide to make it like this? So, <clears throat> here's the fun part is that I didn't decide to make a book that way. This book, the the core of this book started on Twitter. I saw a tweet from uh, a few people had shared Patrick McKenzie, patio 11 shared it. My friend Saul up in Toronto shared it. And the tweet was basically a challenge that said, post a tweet like this, that offers one opinion or perspective or piece of advice per like in a field that you know or have experience in and treat it as an idea generation tool where you you have there's not a narrative to it it's just you've got to generate a hundred of a thing and i was like oh that's an well it wasn't even a hundred of a thing i set the 100 cap it was however many likes you get and i was like i'll do one per like up to 100 and i did this on christmas eve of of 2019 and it, and it started on Christmas Eve and it took about two and a half days of se- of sessions of sitting down to like do a few things. And there was a couple of things at play. One was Twitter itself and having the character limit forced me to take an idea and say, what is the clearest expression of that idea in 280 characters or less, right? And that's kind of the magic of Twitter at its core. It used to be 140 characters. Now I get a little more room to play. The other thing that was kind of interesting was I sat down, I wrote the first 10, and I was like, all right, I got to come up with a framework. And so I started thinking in vague themes. And so you, as you read through it, there, the kind of, stuff kind of shows up in these clusters. They aren't perfectly strung together, although the order they're in the book is the order that I wrote them. They have not been reordered at all. And I think that's also we talked about reordering them and maybe breaking them into sections. I was like, no, they came out of my head in a certain order. And I feel like there's something about that. I don't know what it is, but I feel like that adding too much structure to them will actually take away from some of the way that they get perceived. So, you know, I'd write 10 or I'd set out to write 10 points on, you know, setting prices, for instance, or on the challenges of business partnerships. And I would get to one and I was like, okay, there's my point. And we get to number two, number three. And I'm like, three is kind of big. I got to break that into two or three more. And that's just kind of how it evolved. So I wrote that and got a lot of really positive response to it. A bunch of people saying, I've recently read business books that were less valuable than this thread. And I was like, interesting. And then six weeks later, tweets were still getting retweeted, shared, commented. And I was like, I've never shared anything that's had that kind of staying power. Wonder what it would look like if I turned this into a book. And then had a few people say like, 
shut up and take my money. Uh, you know, the, the, the quintessential thing you love to hear. And I was like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to think a little bit about that. And then that was when I made the decision. I was like, all right, if I'm going to do it, I, I'll kind of want to do it right. We, we've never done a physical product, Amy and I, we've published other books, other small books. The, the book that she wrote in a very short period of time, Just Fucking Ship, is, has been very successful in its own right. And we intend to do a second edition, but we have never gone through the process of actually doing the book design production, figuring out all, all the pieces of it. So I was like, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to, that's how I'm going to, I'm going to base it on those, those core tweets. I want to talk about order really quickly. Uh, the first page says most people pay way too much attention to things that do not matter to their customers. Things like press awards, drama, and hype. Try auditing who and what you're paying attention to, then cut two big things that you've let distract in the past. Why was that the first thing that came to your head? That's a really good question. I, I'm not, sh I don't know. Cause I don't remember exactly what was going on in my head. But what I will say is I think it's one of the most prescriptive things in the book. And if I think back on the moment, you know, I was given this challenge of write a hundred very small things. And because of the business that we run and the work that I do, it made sense for me to jump into like, what's a piece of advice I give all the time or a piece of advice that I think a bunch of people need to hear. And I started there. But I also think I, I kind of realized pretty quickly, like, if it's all that, this is going to be really hard. So it doesn't need to all be lessons. So I think, you know, that book marks the where my brain went to when the challenge was issued, but also the moment that I departed from the challenge and saying, in order for, the, in order for me to write 100 of these, this isn't going to be a series of how-tos. You referenced Cal Newport, which is a book that I've only listened to recently because I thought that I... I thought I got it from the title, yeah. right? I was like, oh, be so good they can't ignore you. I get it. I don't need to read this. I thought it was another business book, right? Where you, you get it at the title and you don't need to read it. And then I started listening to the book on Audible and I'm like, oh, this is what I needed 10 years ago. Talk to me about that. I ruined my passion for Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu that way by building a business out of it and ruined a lot of relationships. And now I'm a big proponent of this, like get, just get super good at something. Yeah. Tell me more about that. Well, I think there's two parts to it. One, I want to sort of touch on something you just said, which is how easy it is to ruin a thing that you love by whether by treating it as a business or just trying to extract something from it. I think the the reason that business ruins passions is is also it's not necessarily the fault of business, but it's the fault of the broken mindset that people have about business that the book really talks about, which is extraction is the default. The default mindset in business is how do I extract value from things rather than how do I create value for things. And when you extract value as your primary mode of doing things, you are also going into something something with a, scarce, uh, a scarcity mindset, that there is only so much of it that there can be. And so when we talk about the things that we are passionate about, I think if we, whether it's trying to turn them into a business or or just turn them into something more than they really are or need to be, it is very easy to run the risk of extracting the very thing that made you love it in the first place. Versus, if I think about where passion actually comes from, there's, there's no universal answer for that. That's kind of implied, but there are a few consistent tools and paths that I think m most people are wired for, especially creative people are wired for. And learning and improving is the, the big one. Another book that is referenced is Badass by Kathy Sierra. And I think Kathy's work 
that predates Badass, such a good book, is really all about the, the underlying psychology of the user being on a path of improvement. And when we feel bad about ourselves and our work, it's usually because something is there preventing the feedback loop of believing that we are improving, right? Whether that is, you know, not getting fast, good enough fast enough and therefore not being able to see the improvement or in a work environment, having a boss that doesn't tell you that you're, you did a good job or you're getting better at it, that kind of feedback loop can undermine the intrinsic you know, uh, uh, feedback loop that you have. Like, well, maybe I'm not getting good at it. And I think those kinds of things are, are unfortunately really kind of wired into a lot of the, the work economics. And I think the antidote is learning to find passion in getting better at something, which requires, and this is the hardest part, especially for people that are maybe later in their career or are already quite good at something, is how hard it is to go back with a full beginner's mindset. And if it's been a long time since you've been an actual beginner, not like learning an adjacent thing, you know, once you're good at you know, programming one programming language, you can kind of jump to another programming language because you understand the fundamentals. Once you want to understand one kind of writing or design or photography, like there's some, there's always some transferable something, but to go from one skill set to now I want to learn how to be, I want to learn how to juggle, right? If I have no transferable skills to juggling, juggling can really screw with your head because you've been, it's been so long since you were bad at something that you internalize, I'm bad at this to I'm bad. And that, I think that psychology really breaks people's work when in fact the opportunity to be like, I'm bad at that, that's an opportunity to get good at it. That's where uh, uh, passion can be generated. And that, pa that kind of passion, the generative passion, I think is the infinite fuel that people see creative people who continue to pursue actually running on. Yeah, a few points in the book, you kind of transition kind of back and forth between like getting really good at things and then how to move past like, I'm good at things, so now I'm exchanging time for money and how to position that. There is some like really tactical pieces in there. Uh, not tactical pieces. What I found the every single page of the book, for the most part, is what I would call the bridge, where I know I'm here, and I know I want to get here, but I don't know that path. And it's not prescriptive enough to be like, here's a script you need to use in your positioning statement, like none of that sort of thing. But instead being like, here's like, a couple of the, the issues that people have when positioning their time as being a value, you know, we talked about, or you talked about like, what time are you saving them and what are their priorities? And one thing I really want to touch on is you talked about earning trust at scale. And I think that aligns really well to the point around Kathy Sierra of like making your users awesome instead of just making your product awesome or being awesome yourself. Yeah. I know that I'm trying to build and grow SEO for the rest of us and all of the brands in the digital marketing space that really frustrate me are ones where they can their only success story is how good they are right. at teaching digital marketing on their digital marketing blog. Yeah. So as yeah. soon as possible, I, I was like, I need success stories. I need customers. I need clients and not testimonials, but like full case studies. Right. I want, I want 10% of the marketing to be like how good I am at this That's right. and 90% to be about other people. And I think that, helps scale a little bit, but I, I would love to hear you talk more about like earning that trust at scale. Yeah. The, the, the main thing that comes to mind is how, and I think the, I think the inspiration for that particular unit of the book 
was how flipped out people get when they think about audience building and marketing. And there is a, I think a lot of, there's a lot of things that contribute to that. And, you know, some people are drawn to it and therefore those, you know, they maybe have inherent advantages of being an extrovert or a really talented communicator or whatever it might be. And because not everyone has those things, some people think that they can't or, or, or won't be good at reaching people because they don't have those built-in abilities. And while those built-in abilities can be advantages, they can also be disadvantages, depending on the audience you're trying to connect with. But in all cases, they're not really the point. They're just tools or expressions. The point that I try and get people to, to break it down, and maybe it's even worth peeling back one more layer, is you know a big part of my business is relationships and community building. You know, almost 15 years with Indie Hall. And even the way we've run Stacking the Bricks has been a very human relationship-driven business, give, even though we've, we've grown it to a reasonable scale. And the thing that I think folks look at a thing like Indie Hall, for instance, and they go, what an amazing experience and awesome community. How do I build a community like that? But they're seeing the end product, the end result. They're not seeing that the majority of the work at the beginning and even still now today is one-on-one. -on -one. It's, it's, it's individual, and the hard part about making the individual thing work is when you start reaching scales. So that's where, where that, that point came in. And so when I look at audience building and I look at the mechanisms that people say, what are you going to do to build an audience? Well, I'm going to start a blog and I'm going to start an email list. I'm going to sign up for Twitter. Like those are, those are the, the, the tactics and the tools, which is great. But like, okay, cool. What are you going to do with them? Well, I'm going to write articles. And then about what? And as soon as you ask the about what question, you're dead, right? <laughs> Because you're putting the, the focus on what you're going to write about, not who you're going to write for and why you're going to write for them. And it seems really, really subtle, but it's the thing that I think flips people out the most when they're thinking about audience building is like, well, who out there needs to hear what I need to hear, right? What hasn't already been said? And I said, well, why does that matter? And the only reason it matters is because you've got a, a sort of a messed up mindset around what an audience actually is. It's not people that want that need to hear a thing. It's that they want to hear it from you because you've earned their trust through those one-on-one -on -one interactions. Or my favorite technique and the simplest and the one that everyone has the ability to do is helping people in public. Coming on a podcast is probably not the place you're going to start, but it's a good, it's something you can do. Going into forums and being active and present in the comments and not just there to drop a link to your article or product every time, but to be a member of that online community that's there to contribute and show up and ask your own questions from time to time. Be like, hey, anybody know anything about this? Like, you, be, you have to be a member of a community before you can be a leader in a community. And I think that that translates to the, you need to, you know, connect one-on-one -on -one with your audience. And there are absolutely ways to scale that and, and towards the ends of once you've built that initial relationship, it gets a lot easier to write a thing or produce or, or publish a thing and have them feel like it's coming directly from you to them because you're, it's entirely built on that foundation of trust. Yeah. It was very freeing for me when I read some of, uh, Joseph Campbell and Hero's Journey, and I realized all the most popular movies from Avengers all the way back through Star Wars and Indiana Jones, every movie that I've really ever loved has been the exact same script, and I didn't realize it. And then all of a sudden when I realized that, I'm like, oh, okay, Inception, Lord of the Rings, like it's all the same script. 
then all of a sudden I felt very free, like yeah. being like, you know, what if none of those things happen? Cause they're like, well, somebody already did it. You know, Joseph Campbell wrote a book about it in like whatever it was like the sixties or something. So yep. we can't make movies based on this. Like we wouldn't have all of those great treasures. So yeah, I totally agree. I, w- I want to touch on one more point as we kind of wrap up here towards the end of the book. You said, if done well, teaching and marketing can be nearly indistinguishable from each other. And you also talked about if you're new to something, build in public. I would love to hear more if somebody's watching this or listening to this and they're like, hey, I'm just getting started. How do I teach? How do I build in public? Talk to me like for you or for, you know, anybody else. Like, what do you think that looks like? Yeah. Well, I think there's there's sort of two components. There's outside of you and inside of you. We'll start outside of you because I think that's the important place to start is, you know, where are your peers? Where are the people like you? This is probably the hardest part to do because for, for two reasons. One is the internet is really big and it's not always super obvious where to look. I have an article, if you search Alex Hillman can't find audience, I think, you'll find the sort of a guide to some things you can type into Google and find articles, forums. It's like, how do you find people that are doing the thing that you're doing where, where they may be, right? You know, the, the internet is so big and we don't know what we don't know. So if we can't imagine a place that we've never been, we'll never find the places that we have yet to go. The finding those folks and changing the approach from walking into a room and trying to impress people to trying to be your, some yourself first and foremost because that's all you can be and not be a, a be a liar be yourself and that includes sharing what you're working on that day what you learned that day where you learned it from right so i think a lot of folks especially beginners are like i don't I don't have anything, again, new to say, or who the hell am I? Why would anybody listen to me? One of the easiest ways to get started is to share your favorite sources. Be the person who's always got an awesome article or podcast to recommend, right? And that's not a place where you want to live forever, but it is absolutely a valuable place to start where you can be seen as somebody who goes out and does the research, finds really valuable insights and and resources and assets and then like the amount of trust that you pick up along the way of being a good curator is definitely a a valuable tool again i think the most common mistake there is people get stuck being the curator so that's where the inside you part comes and i think the practice to cultivate there is to start looking for patterns and seeing what are the common patterns across the things that you are learning and doing that either light you up light up other people and it, i mean if you think about it as as remix or jazz music like how can you fuse together two ideas to create your own original or even semi-original expression i think people are really quick to discount what they're saying is too similar you know it's not novel therefore i shouldn't say it is back to your point about you know every freaking movie ever or the vast majority of them i would say the the practice of synthesizing stuff together and coming up with your way of saying it that includes your own stories your own expression your own experience if you read something and don't get it or disagree that counts too you don't have to go on the internet and be a jerk about it but you can say i read this and it's a little different from the way i experienced it so i want to talk about the way i experienced this so if you view everything as something to riff on I think that's a really good way to approach 
these public spaces. And like I said, and the book itself was, I mean, uh, very few of the things that I wrote in here I have never written before, but each of them was a new expression based on things I even I had written in the past. So I think maybe the, the meta lesson here is, is give yourself the challenge to say, say a thing even if you don't think it's original. The last thing that I'll say on, on this point, and I'll, I'll reference, I don't remember if it's actually referenced in the book or not, is an uh, article by Derek Sivers called Obvious to You, Amazing to Others. Sivers.org slash obvious is, he's very good at making uh, shareable domains. Um, Love it. And, and the, the article kind of explains itself. is like there are so many things that don't get shared because people assume that everyone else already knows this. And if they say it, that they're going to look like a dummy. The flip side of that is I was in a really interesting like leadership brainstorming session last week with a bunch of folks from across the Philadelphia region. And we were talking about ways that we as a community can come together to, you know, to help reverse a lot of the inequities in the world right now when it comes to access. And the group that I was in was uh, focused on how do we help people, particularly the minority and underrepresented populations in our region, have better access to mentorship and professional development. And one of the topics that came up was somebody who's like, you know, I got into consulting and I, you know, I was in a meeting and I said a thing, I did a thing. And then after the meeting, somebody pulled me aside. They're like, hey, you can't do that. You just gave away like $15,000 worth of work in that meeting. And he was like, well, how am I supposed to know that? Who's going to teach me that? So all these unspoken, like things, you know, you don't even maybe even know where you picked them up. Or if you do know where you picked them up, the odds of everyone who needs to know them or have uh, or read them or understand them or have them resonate with them simply because you have a lived experience that's different from everyone else or many of the other people who've already said it. Don't discount your lived experience being the expression of the thing that has been said a thousand times, being the the expression that needs to be said in order to get in in the head of somebody who desperately needs it because they're so quick to ignore everyone else who doesn't look like them, think like them, have their lived experience, things like that. So yeah, there's so much. One of my favorite ways to like kind of play inception in people's brains is if you are hesitating to share something that you know that could help somebody else because you're afraid of what someone else is going to say, Try turning it around and realizing how selfish it is to not share that thing with that person who could benefit from it today, tomorrow, the next week, next month, whatever it is. Realize that by not sharing it, by, by trying to preserve your own fear of something that might happen, but also probably won't, you are denying an unknowable number of people an opportunity to learn that thing in the moment that they need to learn it. So don't be selfish and put yourself out there. I just wrote a new article on Stacking the Bricks. It's uh, stackingthebricks.com slash confidence about that specific thing. Is like putting yourself out there for whatever whatever your mental hangup is, this article will kind of break you of whatever you're, you think you're not doing it for. Uh, I hope a bunch of people have said it was really helpful. So maybe that's a, a good note to wrap that thought up on. Yeah, of course. And at the very least, buy TinyMBA and tweet, start tweeting about it. Read a couple things, share your reactions, share your experiences. I feel very strongly that there's so much of this book. There were so many things and I want to give people permission as they're reading the book. If you read something and you're like, I'm not ready for this yet. Like, that's okay. I'm not, there's a couple of things where I'm like, Oh my God, this is, I'm in the thick of it. Right. And there's a couple of things that I'm like, I've been through that. That was a mess. We've already talked about those today. And there's a couple of things where I'm like, that's going to happen in the future. I don't want to forget this. So 
I think that this book, one of the things I love about it is it, it is a, it can be a fast read, right? And what I mean by that is you can read it once a year without feeling like you have to put, you know, you're not reading the Bible in a year, right? Like I can just say like, all right, every so often, like every year I'm going to read Tiny MBA because I know there's going to be something in there that's timeless advice that's going to apply to me wherever I'm at, whether I'm managing people or building my business or, you know, I don't have any partners yet, but I know that when I, at some point, if I ever work with a partner, like I need to review, right? So I love that about the book. I appreciate you being generous enough to not call it quits with the tweets and be like, yeah, I put it out there. It got a bunch of retweets, probably helped a bunch of people. I did my thing, keep it going. Putting it into this format was very likely a immense amount of work. So I'm very grateful for that. Thank you for taking the time to talk about it. If people want to pick it up at the time we're talking right now, you know, that might not be possible, but when I publish this, it will be. So where can people go to get it? Yeah, the website is tiny.mba and that'll give you the ability to buy a physical copy. Physical copy comes with digital copy as well. So you'll be able to load that on whatever you want to read it on your, your tablet or, or whatnot. If you just want a digital version, you can also buy that from tiny.mba or if you want to buy direct from the Kindle store on Amazon, you know, the direct delivery model, we were doing Kindle on Amazon as well. I love that. I've just started using Readwise. Have you ever heard of Readwise? So oh, like, what's that? Makes your Kindle highlights and just emails you your highlights every month. There's a lot of things. It can be like an Evernote and all this other stuff. But I saw uh, Dave Gerhardt uses it a lot and a couple other people. And I was just like, oh, that's cool. Like, I would love to see what I highlighted four years ago that it decided to surface, you know, and like learn those lessons again and retain things. And it's like five bucks a month or something. And it's cool. Uh, But I would encourage people, you know, obviously buy, you can see if you're watching the video, shelves of books here. I love actual paper books, but getting the Kindle as well. I'm, I'm proud of, as we talked about the, you know, the design, but it's also, I mean, you can kind of see it in my hand. It's a small book. Like it's, yeah. it's short in length, but it's also like the physicality of it. I don't know. I, I'm sure other people who have published books have had the exact same experience I'm about to describe. I have created a lot of things on the internet. I have never held in my hand a book that I wrote and it feels yeah. really cool. Uh, the book, like the physicality of this book feels awesome. So as a, as a artifact, a thing to hold in your hand and put on your shelf, share with others. I'm really proud of what we came up with. Awesome. If you enjoyed that episode, and I hope you did, I've got a couple quick things before you go. The first, of course, is making sure that you have your very own copy of the Tiny MBA. If you haven't ordered, I love it if you did. You can grab a paperback, ebook, or Kindle version. Find the links to all of that at tiny.mba. I also hope you're subscribed to this show. We're going to be releasing more episodes like this with other creators and entrepreneurs just like you. I'm going to be talking to them about their favorite lessons in the Tiny MBA, learning what's going on in their world, and sharing more with you. So you can search for Stacking the Bricks wherever you get podcasts. Make sure you're subscribed. One last thing, check out the Stacking the Bricks website. We've got a great newsletter with new articles coming out every week or two, following a lot of the same topics and themes that we talk about right here on the show. You can do that by going to stackingthebricks.com. I hope you have a great rest of your day and don't forget to keep on stacking those bricks.